please take your Bibles and go to the book of Zephaniah. If you're visiting with us, that black Bible in the chair in front of you, no pun intended, it is on page 666. Sorry, it's like, uh... Zephaniah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. If you hit Haggai, Zechariah, or Malachi, the Italian prophet, you've probably gone too far. Just do a few pages back to Zephaniah. Page 666 in that black Bible in the chair in front of you. Zephaniah chapter 1. I'll read, <coughs> starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, but uh, this morning we're going to do study verses 4 through 13. So we started the book of Zephaniah last Sunday. Excuse me, we've been wanting to do that for a while. We finished the Gospel of John, I think it was in April or May, it was May, and we went through the Psalms, and then I wanted to do a, an Old Testament book, so Zephaniah, which short book, three chapters, we'll be in that till almost the end of September. Zephaniah chapter one, and again, today we'll study verses four through 13, but I'm gonna read all of that from starting in chapter one, verse one. The word of Yahweh which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down swearing to Yahweh and swearing to Milcom, those who have turned back from following Yahweh have not, and have those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent, before sovereign Yahweh. For the day of Yahweh is near. For Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the kings, sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. I will punish on that day all who leap on the threshold, who fill the house of their masters with violence and deceit. On that day, declares Yahweh, it will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. And it will come about at that time that is on that day. That I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their house is desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. There's a 1936 American film, drama film, called Exclusive Story. And the story becomes exclusive because it tracks how the mob was heavily involved in crime in the 1930s 
And the movie ends with the murder of a key person confessing and then identifying top people in the mob had to do with this murder. The word exclusive can have two meanings, that which is select or private, special or restricted, or it could also mean solely, undivided, absolute. So we can see how these two definitions are intertwined in the plot of the movie, exclusive story. It was exclusive uh, in, the, in the sense that restricted Private selects, only certain people had this, but also it was an absolute statement that actually these people were involved in this major crime. But this word exclusive has become a, a four-letter word in our culture. Not that people have a problem saying these four-letter words, but be that as I may. It's a four-letter word in our culture because people, instead of being exclusive, they want to be inclusive, right? You're supposed to be inclusive. Include everybody. You're not supposed to be exclusive. And yet again, as we see constantly, when you compare the culture with the Bible, you see how the Bible constantly goes against our culture. Biblical Christianity moves against our culture because Jesus wants us exclusively. Jesus wants you to want him exclusively, solely. As we come to this part in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, you know, it's the theme of Zephaniah. Seek Yahweh, the God of judgment and discipline, salvation and blessing. And today we'll see, seek Yahweh, Fear him exclusively or fearing him exclusively. Fear him exclusively. Love him singularly. Another way to put it. And we get it from verse 7 of chapter 1. Be silent before Yahweh God. We'll talk about this more later. Be silent is the idea of have all respect. Fear him. It's a command. Be quiet. Fear him. Love him. Be committed to him alone. Fear him exclusively. Here's ways to put this, these verses 4 through 14. Yahweh commands us to love or fear him exclusively and he will do whatever it takes for us to seek, love, and fear him singularly. even if it means disciplining us as his people. That's why we read from Revelation chapter 3, which it, it, it gives that to us very well. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. <clears throat> Excuse me, therefore be zealous and repent. And interesting it goes on into verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. That has not to, nothing to do with salvation. People use this as a, a verse for salvation. No, no, it's talking about communing in a, in a very intimate way with God exclusively. Wants me totally, solely, dine with me, God wants us to want him. And he'll do what it takes to get you there 
even if it means he'll discipline you. Here's another way to put this passage, verses 4 through 14 of Zephaniah. God wants our worship, our attention, our adoration, and our devotion exclusively. He is jealous of our love for Him alone. He's a jealous God. He doesn't want to share His glory with another. And He doesn't want you to share your love with someone else or something else. No, no, no. That's not how He works. God demands exclusive worship from us. He's a jealous God and wants us to want Him solely, only, totally, exclusively. Look, you cannot worship the Lord Jesus and yourself at the same time. Jesus wants His body, the church, to solely love Him, or as He said to the Ephesian church, you've lost your first love. I should be your first love, says Jesus. Judah worshiped Baal, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars. They followed the customs and practices of the nations surrounding them, that were surrounding them, all while they tried to worship Yahweh. It's called syncretism. They're trying to merge worshiping God with other worships of other gods. It cannot be that way. You know, what's interesting is that this passage looms over us because God's discipline begins with his own household. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll make reference to this later on in the service, in the message as well. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17. For a time for judgment to begin with the household of God and if it, begins, if it begins with us first, what is the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? God begins disciplining His people because He wants His people to be zealous for Him, be committed to Him. And you see this constantly with the nation of Israel, with Judah always going after something else, always going after something else, always wanting something else. And God says, you need to want me alone, exclusively, solely. Even for those who identify as God's people, that's not proof against his disciplining judgment if there's no application of his will in a person's life or their relationships. So let's dive into the passage, verses four through 14. First, we'll begin with The command, the only command you see here, uh, be silent or fear me. Verse seven, be silent or to use slang, shut your trap. (laughs) And to be silent in his presence means it's it's a sign of awe and respect and fear before sovereign Lord, sovereign Yahweh, the omnipotent ruler the supreme God who rules over all. He's the creator, the sustainer, the judge of the universe and his people. Be silent, he says, before Yahweh God, before the sovereign Yahweh. Be silent, be quiet, fear him. Now we're gonna look at two different questions that come up from the passage. How do you fear him and why should you fear him? First, how How do we fear or love Yahweh? How do we do this? 
And, and, and the Lord listed off five objects upon which his wrath will fall upon his people. And you see actually three ways Judah mixed their devotion with Yahweh God. And, and we are, have the tendency to do the same thing. Three ways that Judah mixed their devotion to Yahweh with other gods. Notice number one, how you fear Yahweh first. Stop your syncretism. Stop it. They mixed their worship with Baal, look at verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a moment. A little bit later on in the message. Notice he says, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. The remnant of Baal, the god of fertility. There was still a remnant of Baal worshipers. Priests who served were still present. They had fertility festivals sacred prostitution, orgies. Yahweh said, it's enough. Stop this. Judah thought they could have their cake and eat it too. They tried to mix together idolatry with worshiping the only true God. And that's something that we, New Covenant Christians, we're guilty of doing that too. James says that in James chapter 4. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? You can't mix worshiping yourself and worshiping God. It doesn't go together. Notice what Yahweh God says here in the end of verse 4. The names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, it's quite possible these priests wore long black robes in the pagan worship. These would be destroyed. And notice to the point of having no descendants, no, no way to perpetuate their line, they would become a memory of the distant past as a way to judge them. Stop your syncretism. Notice, they mixed their worship with Baal. Second, they, they mixed, they worship the host of heaven. Look at verse five. Those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, this is the practice of both the Canaanites and the Mesopotamians. They go up there on rooftops, so they're flat, bowing down to the sun, the moon, the stars. A trademark of Manasseh's reign and Ammon's reign. <laughs> Yahweh commanded them not to do this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. But they disobeyed. How do you fear Yahweh? You stop the syncretism. They mix worshiping with Baal, they worship the host, and then and they swore to another. Notice verse 5 again. And those who bow down, swearing to Yahweh and swearing to Milcom. Milcom is actually Molech, the Ammonite god, which called for child sacrifice. Oh, that's nice. And then they also swear to Yahweh. So we swear to you, Yahweh, and we offer our child to Molech. What are you doing? Once again, they thought they could worship Yahweh along with the other foreign gods. They were false gods. There were no gods. They had no heart loyalty to God, but only love themselves. They thought they could love Yahweh God and love other gods, but God doesn't work that way. We just sang that all my boast is in Jesus. We must be solely devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So, be silent. Fear him. How? First, stop your syncretism. Two, God says, only follow me. Look at verse six. And those who have turned back from following Yahweh, they did not trust Yahweh alone, showing itself by not following Yahweh alone. They had no interest in following him. They completely abandoned Yahweh. They completely abandoned his will. They abandoned his word. Remember, after Josiah came to power, what was he? Um, he was eight when he came to power. And I think it was in the 16th year he started the reform. So he, and yes, now in the eighth year they started, he started the reforms. So he was 16. And then the 12th year, so by then he's like 21, 20, 21. That's when they found the book of the law. Remember that? Hey, uh, King, look, we found that book. What is it? So you, you open it up. Like, oh my goodness, this is the book of the law. They abandoned God's word. To follow God is to fear God. So you fear him. How? Stop syncretism. Stop trying to merge your idols with, with the Lord. Only follow the Lord. And then third, only seek me and my guidance, says the Lord. Verse 6. And those who have not sought Yahweh or inquired of him. So not only was there syncretism, not only the, were they not following the Lord, what made it worse, they had not sought or inquired of him. They were not seeking him. Remember, that's the theme of Zephaniah. Seek God, Yahweh God. Seek him, go after him. They had not sought or inquired of Yahweh, which means they did not solely worship him, wanting to be guided by him alone, and that, that's what triggered Zephaniah's appeal. Seek him. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. So in short, they had no relationship with Yahweh. True relationship with Yahweh. Though they thought they did. One is committed to Yahweh and him alone, devoting oneself to him in prayer, awaiting his guidance from his word, to seek and inquire. means there's devotion to Yahweh alone. This is what one writer says. He says it well. Quote, God demands exclusive worship from his people. God demands exclusive worship from his people. End quote. Christian, what are the idols of your life? What is it that you want in place of Yahweh? Or along with Jesus? But not solely Jesus. See, this is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is... I know I can't save myself. I know I can't do nothing of me. I should be condemned. I turn from my sin. I repent and I trust in Jesus alone that he died for my sin in my place. That's the heart of the gospel. You repent and trust Christ. You trust in Jesus, the God-man, that he died in your place as your substitute. That's the heart of the gospel. It's Christ and Christ alone. If you're here, you don't know the Lord Jesus, you should trust in Christ. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Repent, trust him. He'll save you. This is what God demands. It's what requires. So be silent, fear Yahweh. How? Stop the syncretism. Follow him only. Seek him, inquire of him. Now the next question, which is gonna be why? 
Be silent, fear Yahweh. Why? Because he will stretch out his hand and cut off. Look at verse four. Back to verse four. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off. Here's God's judging discipline. It will come against his people, Israel, Judah specifically, and her capital, Jerusalem. Notice, stretch out his hand. You know what's interesting about this word, uh, this phrase, Yahweh had delivered Israel with that outstretched arm. It's the same word that's used here. It metaphorically denotes his liberation and his protection of his people. But now, it will be used in judging discipline against them. Because now, he would discipline them with that outstretched arm. And notice, The next verb, he says, I will stretch out and I will cut off. Same word used in verse three with the nations. Complete, total, utter removal of the wicked. These who said they were God's people but wanted nothing to do with him in their lives, they will face his judgment. So be silent, fear Yahweh, because one, he will stretch out his hand and cut off, but also two, because the day of Yahweh is near. Again, verse seven, we looked at verse seven, the first part, the only command here, be silent. Look at the next part of verse seven. He says, be silent, fear the sovereign God, for the day of the Lord, or of Yahweh, is near, for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He set apart his guests. The day of Yahweh is near. Which it would be a theophany, what's called in the Old Testament, where God manifests himself like the pillar of fire that he did with the nation of Israel. The day of Yahweh is the time that he visits his people. He brings his judgment. And this phrase, the day of Yahweh, it begins here in the Old Testament a reference to judgment that would come upon the whole world and the Old Testament reveals to us this day and then, and then when you go into the New Testament it begins to s- expand the meaning of what would happen on that day and you see the full effects of that in the book of Revelation. So it's not actually referring to like a 24-hour day per se but a specific period of time. And for Zephaniah, listen to what one writer says, he saw, quote, both the events pending in the immediate future as they were linked with God's action in the final day as being of one piece. And I say, what did you just say? I'll put it to you this way. I'll put it to you easier. In other words, Zephaniah, when he saw the prophecy of the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, it's like coming to Mingus Mountain, you see it's, there's just one mountain range, Right? But until you get there, you actually see there's like three or four mountains, let's just say for example. So when you look from far away, it just looks like one mountain range. But when you actually get there, like, oh, there's like three, four, maybe five mountains. That's what happens in the prophets. The prophets, they see the day of the Lord, they see the day of Yahweh, see it coming, and there's immediate things that are taking place, but then they see, oh, there's also future events that are also gonna happen too. So in other words, there would be Oh yeah, on the day of Yahweh, there would be looming historical events that Judah would face, but also huge events that would take place in the far future. So the day of Yahweh was something that 
Judah would face at that time and that happened truly in 586 BC. God's judgment, his judging, disciplining hand would come upon his people, Judah, the nation of Israel. But then there were huge future events that would take place in the far future and you see that taking place when? The book of Revelation. Now, understand this too. Judah, Israel, and this is true, you would see this in the prophets. Judah viewed that day, the day of Yahweh, all in the positive for them. Yahweh would destroy the enemies of his people, save them, bless them, restore them. Hey, all right, Jesus, you're okay, God, yeah. That's how they viewed it. Only positive. Which, and that's true, but Zephaniah and the other prophets too, they turned around this view of the populace because as you see here, the day of Yahweh would be a day where Yahweh would visit or punish his people with his disciplining, should be disciplining, not discipling, disciplining, purifying hand. He would discipline his people. He would purify his people because notice it says the next part of verse seven, for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. Be silent because the day of Yahweh is near, because Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He set apart his guests. Now, either he's the one who's going to be the guest or the nations are going to be the guests. Either way, here's the point. His people would be the sacrifice for their vast evil ways. That's what he's saying. As a sacrifice was a slaughtering, his people would be slaughtered because they've offended the only true living God disobeying him because of their syncretism, because they were not following him, because they were not seeking him or inquiring of him. And then you see, notice from verse 11 through 13, the Lord he starts to speak again here. This is what's going to happen on that day. On that day. It says, it will come about on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish, or the word can actually mean visit, appoint, inspect, appropriately recompense his disobedient people. He'll discipline his people and notice he brings up three specific sins here in verse 8 and verse 9. On that day, I will visit my people for the lifestyles, their customs, and their behaviors. Verse 8, I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Notice it's starting with those in royalty. And he says, all who clothe themselves in religious attire. Well, wait, is it because they're wearing certain clothes? No, the idea is they adopted new lifestyles, customs, and moral behavior. Again, you see the syncretistic practices were being rebuked by Yahweh. They allowed for other lifestyles, for other customs, and behaviors to rule their lives, not the word of God. So on that day, 
I will visit them for the lifestyles, customs, and behaviors. Another, second, I will visit them for the pagan practices and superstitions. Verse 9, I will punish on that day all who leap on the threshold. It's hard to know what this means, leaping on the threshold, but it seems that this also had to do with syncretistic practices Judah had acquired as part of their culture. Instead of following the word of God, something that goes back to Dagon, uh, the Philistine gods, and what they would do. So they continued to adopt and have respect for pagan religious practices and superstitions. And then trying to put it together with the worship of Yahweh. But again, Yahweh wanted them exclusively. So there was customs and behaviors. They were adopting pagan practices, superstitions, and also a third for benefiting through violence and deceit. Notice the next part of verse 9. Who fill the house of their masters or of their Lord with violence and deceit. The house of their rulers was filled with the goods they obtained by violence, by means of deceit. God hates ill-gotten gain, benefiting oneself at the expense of others. They abandoned the covenant they made with Yahweh so he would come and visit them on that day. And remember, we talked about this before. God's judgment began with the leaders of the nation just as his disciplining hand must begin with the household of faith. 1 Peter 4, 17. That's why God sometimes he uses suffering, trials. And doesn't mean all suffering. Doesn't mean all trials. Doesn't mean all heartache is his disciplining hand, but sometimes it is. Suffering, trials, heartaches, difficulties. Sometimes God uses that as a way to purify his people of their sin. So on that day, these He's bringing this upon his people because of what they've done. And notice he says also from starting verse 10, on that day there'll be despair, verse 10 and also verse 11. On that day declares Yahweh, notice there'll be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Notice, cry, wail, crash. The cry was a cry for help, hopeless despair, Wailing was screaming in intense distress, experiencing extraordinary catastrophe. God's hand would come against those who think they were secure. The fish gate was the north of the city used for fishermen who would enter the city with their catch. The second quarter was a later addition to the city where fashionable mansions were built. And a loud crash from the hills refers to those hills surrounding Jerusalem. There be an echo of the crash. And, and notice it says in verse 11, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. Uh, this was like the present day Wall Street. This is where all the commerce was happening. Much of the trade and economic activity took place at the mortar. And then it says here, For all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. These were the merchants. The merchant people who traded with silver. All of this awaited total devastation, utter destruction, complete cleansing. There would be a complete economic collapse upon Judah. On that day, there'll be a cry, wail, a crash. The Lord's saying, Take me seriously. Take me seriously and worship me alone. 
On that day, there'll be despair. Notice on that day, he says, I will search. Look at verse 12. It will come about at that time or on that day. I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Nobody would be hidden from God's searchlight. None could hide in the dark away from Yahweh. The dark corners will not be dark because Yahweh's lamp will find you. It's like those lights that they have now, those blue lights, oh my goodness, it's like they light up the whole street and they're coming at you this way and you, you can't see, right? Because they blind you, you know, the blue lights. If you have a blue light, shame on you. I know, you can repent later. No, so it's, it's, it's like, it just shines, it's everything. You can't see. Yahweh's light, his lamp's gonna shine bright. He'd comb every nook and cranny because God would expose all the sin of his people. On that day, on that day, I will search. And then on that day, notice he says, I will visit the stagnant, verse 12. I, I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good or evil. Interesting. Those who were complacent, stagnant. Literally, the word is thickening on their lees or thickening on their dregs. That's weird. What does that mean? This refers to wine. When it's fermenting, wine is left unattended. What happens, it would become thick, unpalatable, disgusting to drink like a thick blah. So what's he saying? Judah had been left alone, so her behavior went from bad to worse to the point where their boredom and their apathy led them to cynically doubt that Yahweh would do anything. So their attitude, it was, it was exposed, which said, well, you know, there's nothing to do good or evil. Their attitude would be exposed, which believed that God simply didn't matter anymore. Yahweh's inactive. He's not doing good or evil. Who cares? They become complacent, like that thickening, disgusting wine that's unattended, that slop, at thinking their security and their prosperity was their right, no matter what they thought about Yahweh. Has the church become like this too? Has the church become so apathetic and so cynical and so bored and apathetic that we're like slop. On that day, I search, I visit the stagnant, and notice he says, finally, on that day, they'll be plundered, verse 13. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they'll build houses but not inhabit and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. They'll be looted and plundered. All their hard work of building houses and vineyards will be destroyed. And you know, the wealth, the houses, the vineyards, blah, 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 these were signs of God's blessings upon his people because of his gracious generosity. But when the people turned away from Yahweh, all those blessings associated with the covenant would be forfeited the God who they thought was inactive. Yeah. He's very much active. 
Yahweh would show them he truly was in control by taking away all from them all these goods, all their property, giving it to other nations. Interesting. These are the very covenant curses from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 30. Moses warned them. When you become so, so at ease and then you become complacent and you're not gonna go against the gods and nations, you're gonna adopt their practices, the Lord's gonna bring these things upon you. They did exactly what Moses had warned them not to do. And God's disciplining hand would come against his people. He would. Look, this is a call to repentance, really. To, to, to repent of our lack of worshiping Yahweh exclusively. He does not tolerate syncretistic practices. This is so good for us as, as Christians, New Covenant believers, because it, it pricks us. It, where, where am I trying to worship this and God, worship me and God, Worship this relationship and God. Worship this thing and God. What, what am I doing? Am I doing this, Lord? What are the idols of my heart? And Yahweh calls us away from indifference towards Him. Look, He is actively and presently involved in our lives and in our life history. He's orchestrating everything for the glory of His name in your life. Everything. God demands exclusive worship from us. He's a jealous God and wants us to want Him solely, only, totally, exclusively. You cannot worship the Lord Jesus and yourself at the same time. You just can't. God wants our worship, our attention, our adoration, and our devotion exclusively. He's jealous of our love for Him. And friends, He'll come and if he needs to, he'll discipline you to get your attention. He squeezes so you will be driven to want him, driven to prayer, driven to love, driven to devotion because he deserves all praise and thanks, right? Of course he does. He deserves our th- praise. He deserves our thanks. He de- deserves all our praise, all our thanks. Once again, Yahweh commands us to love or fear Him exclusively. And He'll do whatever it takes for us to seek love and fear Him singularly. Which is good. Because at this time, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Or it's also known as communion. It reminds us of our singular, exclusive devotion to Christ. It reminds us of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. It brings to our mind, you know what, I've sinned, Lord, I, have not, I've, I've, I need to confess to you. I have not done that. So it, it causes us to search our heart, examine our lives, and it causes us to take us back to the gospel, to grace, and God's forgiveness, and we took that judgment that we should face 
the eternal condemnation that we should face, he put it upon Jesus instead of us as our substitute. This Lord's Supper reminds us of that, which is why it's for believers. If you're here, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not for you. It's for Christians who know the Lord Jesus. If you're not a member here, you're welcome to join. If you're from a church of like faith and practice, you join them with us in this. And for Christians who have something against another Christian, you've tried to go. It's one thing where you've tried to go, you can't reconcile, but you haven't gone to reconcile. That's another thing. If you haven't gone to reconcile, you should probably wait to take the Lord's Supper. First try to reconcile with that person, then come take the Lord's Supper. Because God's reconciled with us, right? Praise His name. So let this be a a time for you, as a call to repentance in your own life, and to make known, Lord, what are the idols? We're we're not trying to mix you with other things in my worship and my love for you. Let this be a time for you to search your own heart and to be thankful for God's grace. Let's take a moment and pray. And Father, we admit and confess the idols of our hearts, and, and we thank you, Jesus, that you had to die for that too. So we come to you with humility. Thank you for your grace. We don't deserve anything from you, especially your love. So we pray that this will be a reminder of our exclusive devotion to you, our allegiance to you, how Jesus, you died for us in our place. There's forgiveness. We're justified. We're made right with you. We're your children. You've bought us back. We're in union with you, Jesus. You've called us to yourself. Remind us of these great truths. All because of Christ Jesus and Him crucified. So I encourage you just a few moments to take this time and pray and and have this wonderful time between you and the Lord, examining your heart, proclaiming the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel of grace. And now there's forgiveness of all your sins. Remind yourself of this gospel truth. And may it take you back to your commitment to Jesus, Christ and Christ alone. Please do that now.